You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Thank you, Sally. Well, good morning again, everyone, and welcome to church on this truly wet morning. It couldn't be more different from last week, could it? Sweltering in here in 35-degree heat and now having to row or swim to church this morning. Well, I'm, ex- I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited every, every week to be here. You know that if you know me. But I'm particularly excited because we are starting a new series. I've been really looking forward to this as we were planning out our year last year. Really looking forward to this. It is called Journey with Jesus. There it is up there, Journey with Jesus. We're going to travel through the second half of Mark's gospel, that is chapters 9 through 16 over the next nine weeks, as Jesus goes on his own journey, as he makes his way to the cross, as he resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem. And as we do every week in our Sunday gatherings, in our small groups, we want to ask the question of ourselves and each other, what actually does it mean to journey with Jesus? What does it mean to walk in his way? What does it mean to be influenced by him? What does, it mean to, what does it look like to journey with Jesus? Now, I don't know if you guys have heard of the famous 500-mile walk through southern France and northern Spain called the El Camino. This is the route it takes. Some of you may have even taken this 800-kilometer walk or part of it. I know Luca has walked some of it basically in a pair of flip-flops almost, pretty unprepared <laughs> to walk that. Uh, it's made famous recently by the great movie starring Martin Sheen called The Way. I don't know if you've seen it. A fantastic movie. I watched it again last night. An enormous walk in Europe. It's a journey pilgrims have taken for over a thousand years. Now, this walk's often talked about as a spiritual journey. On the main website for the El Camino, it's described as a journey of the spirit that inspires and transforms. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? People do the walk for all sorts of different reasons, but many are doing it as a sort of pilgrimage. Some are processing grief, like in the film, The Way. Some are struggling through transition, difficult times of life, difficult things happening to them. But I tell you what, whether they know it or not, so many are seeking answers to deeply spiritual questions, questions that you or I have to face at some time or another. Questions like, what on earth am I doing here? What does God want for my life? If there is a God, can I get close to him? Does he have a plan or a purpose for all things and my life? Where does he want me to go in my life next? Well, I want to invite every single one of us on a journey to look at these questions and more our own spiritual journey over these next few months, and we don't have to take a 24-hour long-haul flight to begin it in Spain or France. And whose better footsteps could we walk in than that of Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith? And to follow someone really is to learn from them, isn't it? When we follow someone, when we admire someone, when we aspire, we aspire to be like someone, we want to be influenced by them, don't we? We want to be shaped by them. We want to be molded by them. This is the essence of the word disciple. It basically it comes from the Greek word learn, to learn. A disciple is a learner. Those who want to walk in the way of Jesus must learn from him. And what better way to kick off 2020 together as a community than to journey with Jesus over this term? Now, in Mark's gospel, 
There is a clear sort of separation. There's a clear demarcation between the first eight chapters and the next. The first half of Mark's gospel really is concerned with one question, and that is, who the heck is Jesus? Who is this man? Who is, what is his identity? Who is this man who heals the sick, teaches with authority, commands the winds and the waves, claims to forgive sin, takes on the religious establishment, and hangs out with questionable characters? Who is he? The question concerning the other half of the book is, which is where it's going to be our focus for the next nine weeks, is what does it mean to follow him then as he sets his face resolutely to Jerusalem, to the cross? What does it mean to follow him? And our reading for today deals with that first question and begins to answer the second. So that's going to be our pattern for this morning. A brief time looking at who is this man and then beginning to tease out the implications of what that means, what it means to follow him. And I think the answer to that is going to surprise many of us. I'm really excited about this journey this morning. So we begin right at what you could almost call the pivot point of Mark's gospel. You could say it's the climax, certainly the climax of Mark's biography. What fell? Okay, is it still in one piece? Good. Of course, the climax of, of Mark's account of Jesus' life, his biography, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. But right in the middle, it's this question of his identity. All signs have been pointed to this question being dealt with. The tension's been building right through chapters 1 to 8, and now we get to deal with it head on. Jesus, as you heard in the reading, takes his disciples away from the massive crowds. They're following this miracle worker, this great rabbi, this great teacher. And he puts the question of the moment plainly to his disciples. There must be talk. What is the rumor mill saying? Who, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And they answer pretty quickly. Well, Jesus, some say John the Baptist back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah back from the dead. You seem to be some sort of prophet, old or new. Now, each of these answers has some truth to it. They're basically saying you seem to be a man of God. You seem to have some, some divine aspect about you. You have some authority about you. Jesus says, okay, that's what other people say, but what do you say? Who do you say I am enough about other thought, thoughts of other people? But what about you? Now, I reckon it's just quite easy to parrot the thoughts of other people, isn't it? There's not much effort required. There's no real commitment to put forward other people's thoughts and ideas because you're not married to them. If they're attacked, it doesn't matter. It's not your ideas. But Jesus is not interested in that. He wants to know what each one of us, ourselves, think. And I do believe it is the most important question you or I will ever consider ourselves, what to make of Jesus of Nazareth. We all have a decision when it comes to him. No parent can make it for you. No pastor can make it for you. No leader, no friend, no partner. We've all got to answer it for ourselves. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, Jesus asks this of his disciples, and I'll bet a silence kind of drops on the group. And as always, the Apostle Peter just jumps in there to fill that silence. And he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You are the one. Now, as many of us know, Christ, Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, same thing. It means the anointed one. You are the one. In the Old Testament, kings or certain people were anointed for their role as leaders for God's people and kings particularly. And the greatest example, most powerful example of this was King David. That was the pinnacle of God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament in terms of their military prowess. And people, Jews and Jesus, they long to go back to those days. 
They longed for someone to come and restore the glory of Israel and kick out the Romans. Jesus, you are that one. It's obvious. You're a man of God. You come to shake things up. You are it. You are the Messiah, the Christ. You're the one. And Peter's answer is correct. Or is it? I mean, it is. And Jesus warns them, though, not to tell anyone. Don't you reckon that's weird? Seems like the best news of all. And Jesus tells them to be quiet. It's what commentators call the messianic secret. Why does Jesus call this to be kept in? Why? Well, it's going to make more sense when we read the next section. Let's have a look at verse 31 together. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Yes, Peter, you are right. You got it right in one. I am the Messiah. And it means these things, suffer, rejection, be killed. Suffering, rejection, death. Whereas every Jew, including Jesus' disciples, wanted a conquering king to kick out those Romans, they wanted a brave heart. They wanted a Maximus. One who would come and bring great victory overthrowing the Romans. They just don't get it. Their idea of a Messiah, conquering hero, restore the glory of Israel. This is the type of leader they wanted, but Jesus would have none of it. Why? Because a human leader winning a temporary victory over an earthly kingdom benefits very few. But a divine leader winning a spiritual battle for an eternal kingdom benefits all who exercise faith in its king. Let's have a look at the next verse, verse 32. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I'll just take this opportunity here to give us all a little bit of advice. Think carefully before you rebuke the Son of God. Uh, Jesus I heard what you're saying. I'm not sure you've thought this through. Let me tell you how I think it should go. Poor old Peter. You see, this is how non-compute this information is to Peter. And let's not pretend we're any different. Suffer and die? Are you mad? Peter gets a pretty serious rebuke from Jesus, doesn't he? Get behind me, Satan. A serious rebuke for a serious reason. You see, what Peter is suggesting to Jesus was to steer away from the mission God had in mind since the fall of humanity, to rescue us. Give in to Peter's idea of victory, you and I remain lost. The stakes are huge. Now then, this is where I want to spend the most amount of time this morning, then Jesus clearly articulates what it means to follow him. He says, my kingdom is so different. I'm going to be a different kind of king. And if you want to follow me, things are going to be really different. Make no mistake, this is what it means. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, if I was in charge of recruiting for Jesus, I wouldn't lead with this. I wouldn't lead with this. If you're anything like me, you might be thinking Jesus needs a little bit of help in the marketing department. 
He needs to work on his pitch a little bit more. I really got into this idea of honing your pitch. You know, if you're in sales or marketing, you know what I'm talking about here, honing my pitch, particularly when I was in the band, back in the band days, another band story, you know you love it. Uh, when I was, I was preparing to spend two weeks of what would be probably the hardest two weeks of my life in Nashville trying to convince anyone who would listen to pay our band some attention. And so I spent uh, a lot, lot of time preparing for these meetings with some friends of mine in sales and marketing trying to hone my elevator pitch. Now, you know what that means. If you, you find yourself stuck in an elevator with someone of influence you want to impress, you've got maybe 20, 30 seconds, you want to use that time well and leave them thinking, I want to get involved with this person. So I worked so hard on developing our pitch. Uh, let me tell you, if you had heard it, you would have thought we were the biggest band ever to come out of Australia. <laughs> forget Cold Chisel, forget Midnight Oil, it was my band. And you would be just missing out on the greatest opportunity of your career not to get involved with us. That was the pitch, right? That was the kind of thing I was trying to hone. Now, of course, what this pitch failed to mention was that we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. And truthfully, it was an absolute risk to get involved with a band like us with very little runs on the board and just no idea what it meant to be a band in the States. But you don't lead with that, do you? You don't include those kind of things when you're trying to put your best foot forward. On your CV, you don't put those kind of things out there. But Jesus is not like this. He comes right out with it. Right out with the truth. And let me tell you, if you want the truth, if you're sick of fake, if you're sick of posturing, if you're sick of trying to sift through what's true and what's not, then Jesus is for you. Comes right out with the truth. With what at first sounds like, let's be honest, the exact opposite of what we're looking for. Think about it. If anyone would come after me, they've got to deny themselves. And be honest with yourself. Is that automatically appealing? Now, I reckon there can be a few different reactions to that statement, deny yourself. It can be kind of cool in some circles to deny yourself, right? Whether it might be some sort of detox or you want to get fitter, you want to get healthier. It could be denying yourself some sort of drink or some sort of food. It's particularly in the area we live in, that's, people are into that. I've been into that and I know lots of people who at various times are into those kind of things of denying ourselves to get a greater outcome. That's not a bad thing. But it's not really what Jesus means here. Even those, those things can be good. I found this quote really helpful I was preparing for today. Denying self is not an ascetic self-denial of certain material or earthly things. Rather, it is the rejection of the ascendancy of self, a refusal to allow self-interest to guide one's life. Jesus is not calling us to deny our neighbours, take up our comforts, and follow our dreams. I think if you wanted to say, what is the Australian dream? I think it would be that. Deny others. Deny our neighbours. Take up our comforts. Follow our dreams. What does Jesus call to us to? Deny ourselves. Take up our cross. Follow him. It is to completely unassert our own will. What does that look like? It means praying, your will be done, like Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. And we see it so beautifully played out with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve before his death. Father, if there is any other way, take this cup of suffering from me, but not my will, yours be done. And here's the thing. This is why I think 
relating that first question to the second question really matters. Who would you do this for? Christ calls us into a life of self-sacrifice. Who would you do it for? This is why the, the question of Jesus' identity is so important. If Jesus is just some sort of interesting teacher, would you bother denying yourself for him? If he was some sort of interesting philosophical leader or thinker, would you sacrifice for him? No. But you might deny yourself for the saviour of the world. You might even take up your cross. And that's the second thing Jesus mentions. He says, deny yourself and then take up your cross. Now, what does that mean? Well, the term bearing a cross off, it's my cross to bear, it's a little bit in our cultural lingo at the moment, a little bit. And it can, be, can mean a bunch of different things. There are some silly examples, right? If someone gives you decaf instead of the full-strength stuff, someone gives you soy milk instead of almond milk, you might say, oh, it's my cross to bear, ha, ha, ha. Or we might say it like that. Or it gets less and less trivial or maybe more serious. You know, it might be sort of the lower things in life, like a terrible commute, bad traffic, dealing with annoying people at work, difficult people or a bad boss or really long meetings at work. Hey, they, they are really, maybe that's less trivial, but they are hard. But we could kind of experience those things and think, well, it's my cross to bear. That's carrying my cross. We might think that. Or even less and less trivial and more serious, we might think it's just the really tough things in life, like sickness, the sickness of a loved one, sickness of a child or a tragedy. We might think that is my burden to carry. That is my cross to bear. What is Jesus talking about when he says, take up your cross? Well, let's think about it. What does it really mean? It means bearing a cross. What do we think about? It is a condemned prisoner carrying the beam, the cross beam, to a place of execution. Jesus isn't using cross bearing to describe the human experience of carrying some burden through life. It's much more comprehensive than that. Even though, of course, when we do those things, he is with us, much more comprehensive than that. People carrying crosses were people going to execution. It is the ultimate in denying oneself. But if you are anything like me, asking me to deny myself and take up my cross sounds a lot like giving up my freedom. It's, it just feels like the opposite of what our culture might call the good life. Don't you think? Be honest. Yet Jesus claims it is the way to true life and true freedom. You see, you and I, we are just conditioned to think freedom equals radical individualism, limitless choice and complete self-determination. We just think that is freedom, don't we? That is freedom. Throw off the shackles of whatever binds us. We want to be free from the burdens of care and responsibility that others put on us, parents put on us, expectations. Throw off the shackles of those things, even geographical boundaries. I don't know, I reckon we have um, many rites of passage left in our Australian culture, but there are a couple. And one, I think, is getting your driver's license. That is just a rite of passage. Do you remember the first time you got in a car without a teacher or without a parent, shut that door, and you were allowed to, right? We don't want to go into those. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like just shutting that door, putting the key in the ignition? You, only you had to say what went on the radio, you know, the cassette player when I was doing it. And uh, did you, do you remember the freedom, putting the key in it? You could go anywhere. I mean, I could go anywhere the $10 in my petrol tank would allow me to go, right? <laughs> anywhere within that $5 radius. 
The feeling of freedom. There's nothing much like it, is there? You, you experience it a bit when you're a kid and you get a bike and you can kind of go a little bit, but, oh, getting in that car. That felt like freedom to me. Endless choice, complete self-determination. That's what freedom looks like in our cultural climate. I'm the master of my own fate, choice, and individualism. That will grant me what my heart desires, true freedom. Now that we are really free to find ourselves, to, we create the best version of ourselves, and of course we want to post it all over social media and make us all feel incredibly anxious and guilty that we're not like those self-discovered people. The problem is this does not deliver on its promise. True freedom is not found in limitless choice with no boundaries. It can actually be an incredible burden for us. It's what commentators are now calling the burden of self-discovery. Maybe you've read about this yourself. It's quite a scary thing. Just think about it. It's quite a scary thing. It can be quite anxiety-inducing to have to make yourself all the possibilities of the world in front of you. Limitless choice. Create the amazing version of ourselves that we are solely responsible for that journey we are on. One commentator I really enjoyed, James K.A. Smith, writes this, freedom to be myself, that's what we think, freedom from all, that, the, all the shackles and the burdens of responsibilities, anything that people would put on us, that freedom starts to feel like losing myself, dissolving, my own identity slipping between my fingers. You see, you and I, we may not want to admit it, but we need someone even to tell us who we are to show us the life that we are so desperate to live. Because driving on an open highway with the top down, that feels like freedom, doesn't it? It does. It feels like freedom. But trying to drive through a paddock of tall grass and mud in a 1995 Nissan Pulsar hatch does not feel like freedom, let me tell you from experience. Driving on the freeway, on the highway, that feels right. Driving in mud and tall grass in a little car does not feel like freedom. But I can go anywhere. Smith again. When you've been eaten up by your own freedom and realize the loss of guardrails only meant ending up in the ditch, you start to wonder whether freedom is all it's cracked up to be. Or whether freedom might be something other than the absence of constraint and the multiplication of options. There's a difference between freedom from and freedom to. Christ has freed us from the power of sin, death, and the enemy, and he has now freed us into something. See, Christ invites us into freedom. It is an invitation to follow him and his way in the grooves of grace, in the pathway of peace, in the journey of joy. Now, it might look like the very thing we are allergic to, commitment and accountability, but it is the way to true life. He goes on to explain why. Jesus says in verse 35, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. The first lesson on this journey of Jesus, and there will be many over these next number of weeks, is to trust him when it comes to what to hold on to and want to let go of. I found this quote, again, really helpful. And here comes another surprise. It is surprising, isn't it? The way to life is self-denial, carrying a cross. Here comes another surprise. This is the way of total freedom. 
If you clutch your life wholly to yourself, protecting it against all others, asserting all your rights, needs and privileges, you lose it because it isn't life any longer. If, however, you acknowledge that life is not yours by right, that all is privilege, and that it is to be lived in the love that the gospel story reveals, self-giving love, then you possess it wholly. Now, sorry, there is now nothing to lose and everything to gain. Jesus' second lesson on the journey with him is that our souls are of infinite worth. You thought about that? Our souls are of infinite worth. Don't you dare trade them for anything else. Verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Your soul is of infinite value. You cannot put a value on it, yet many are willing to forfeit it for any number of things. Jesus talks about gaining the whole world. Ask yourself this. What is the world to you? What is the world to me? What if I had it? What I think, I've done it. Life was worth it. I've made it. What is it for you? What would make you truly happy, ultimately content? If I had it, I would be happy. I'd be willing to trade my soul for it. Friends, let's not be fooled. This is the warning of the passage today, and I'll finish with this. Don't you dare entrust your soul to anything less than the God-man we follow, Jesus Christ. Because who else would deny themselves completely? Who else would willingly carry a cross and hang on it to win your true freedom? Think of anything else you'd give everything to get. Would it do those things for you? Nothing else you will find. No one else, nothing else but Jesus Christ. And then, once we know this, once we believe it in our hearts, you and I can begin to have the strength to ourselves deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him because he did it for us. We're now going to try something a bit different as I close. I'd like to invite Andrew Sloan, our great brother, to come and help us pray through all that we've talked about so it doesn't remain up here, but the Holy Spirit, by his grace and power, would move it into our hearts so that we'd transform and change. So I'd like to invite Andrew up now to pray for us and with us so that God would change us on this journey with Jesus. Thank you, Andrew. Let's pray together. Indeed, would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, you've shown us who you are, truly human, one of us, truly divine, God's own son, the Messiah, the one, the one who fulfilled the Father's will for God's people. Thank you. Jesus, you showed us what it means to be truly human and freed us for it. Please help us by your spirit to see the ways we've been trapped by lies of false freedom, deceptions that lead to death. We acknowledge the grace of your freedom 
the grace of your invitation to come follow and find true freedom in self-giving love. Please help us now as we take a moment to think in your presence, to see the lies that have entangled us and to find the way with you to life and freedom. We recognise, Lord, that hard as it sounds, yours is an invitation, an invitation to come follow, to find freedom, to live lives of self-giving love. We thank you for your humility and mercy that you embrace the way of the cross for us, the way of service and suffering and death. And we acknowledge that you walk that way with us. Help us to know your mercy, seeing you call us to what you have walked for us. Help us to know that we do not walk that path alone. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can trust ourselves to you and your way. We rejoice that having given up ourselves for you, you give us back our true self and free us to live lives in service of you, to live lives of love and service, to find what it is to be truly human, to live lives of love. Would you do that, please, for us? Amen.